You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Amen. Good morning, everybody. So thrilled to be with you this morning and to look at God's word with you. And uh, nothing brings me more delight than uh, to to look at the word of God with you. And and it's exciting as we gaze upon God's word and look through it and seek to understand it and apply it. And uh, I want to come to more of a knowledge of it, and we will this morning. Um, So to do that, would you please turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 18, verses 24 through 30. Uh, Luke 18, verses 24 through 30. Um, If you can open up there in your Bible, if you don't have a Bible, uh, please do grab one in the seat pocket in front of you or uh, borrow one um, or uh, go in the back. Um, There's stools in the back that you can grab one, but you're going to need a Bible for the, the rest of the time that we're together here so that you can understand what it is exactly that we're, that we're talking about. Um, and we're just, I, I just want to be faithful to explaining the text, okay? So today's going to be full of just explanation of the text that's in front of you, okay? And, um, and God's going to do so much through it. So Luke chapter 18, verses 24 through 30, um, that's where we are. And uh, if you remember last week, we... We spoke through uh, chapter 18, verses 18 through 23, and so now we pick up in chapter 24, uh, verse 24, um, and if you remember, Jesus has been telling us these conditions for conversion, these uh, qualifications for salvation, what's required in order for someone to be saved, okay? It's just as clear as day. That's what's being made known here, okay? And, um, and, and Jesus just got finished with the rich young ruler um, requiring him to sell everything and follow Jesus in order for him to be saved. And, and you know, that's a good way of saying it. Um, in order to be saved, you must follow Jesus, um, meaning you must submit to him as the Lord. You don't make Jesus Lord. You just recognize that he is Lord and submit to him as Lord for your entire life, right? Um, you don't accept Jesus into your, your heart. You realize you're a sinner. You repent of your sin and you trust in Christ and then he accepts you based upon your repentance and faith. And so this, this ruler is required to submit to Jesus as Lord as the evidence of true saving faith and he, he rejects it, Right? Um, and, and so, and we see here that this lordship issue, no matter what he wanted, no matter what he said, he said it in verse 18, I want eternal life, look like the perfect seeker. Jesus then goes on to expose his false understanding of God, his false understanding of himself. And then the true test, okay, if you want eternal life, sell everything and follow me. And it exposes his unbelief, 
right? Lordship is the true test, we said. Anyone can say, I believe in Jesus. Anyone can say, I want eternal life. Anyone can say, I want to go to heaven. But the true test of whether or not you are a believer is whether or not you have decided and are fully following Christ. Not perfectly, but as the, uh, as the sum total of your life, you know his word and you follow him, right? That's the evidence that you have believed in him, right? And, and so this is the true test that Jesus has shown following Jesus. Um, a lot of times we say you, you got to recognize your own sinful condition, but let me just tell you this. Um, it's good that you confess your sins. Some say, you know, we got to confess our sins in order to be saved. But what's really better to say is, yeah, confess your sin, but you need to repent of your sin and trust in Christ, right? Some say, oh, hey, we got to pray a prayer in order to be saved. The probably better way to say it is you need to trust in Christ and follow Jesus, right? Um, it's one thing to know you're a sinner. It's another thing to turn from your sin and to believe in Christ and to trust in him for the forgiveness of your sin. It's one thing to say that you believe. It's another whole thing to show evidence that you believe by following him, right? And so this is what Jesus is exposing here. Anyone can say anything they want, but following Christ, the lordship issue is the real key. And so Jesus now is coming out of that and he's teaching the disciples and we're going to see that, okay? He's teaching the disciples on this fourth condition for conversion, this whole section is very clear. He's teaching what must be done in order for someone to be saved. And now he moves into this fourth issue. And so we're going to read starting in verse 18, just to kind of get the bigger picture again, since for you it's been a week, even though I've been studying this nonstop now for two weeks. And, um, and I'm going to read all of it, and then, but we're going to only talk about verses 24 through 30, okay, for this last condition. So let's read. Uh, Chapter 18, verse 18, down through chapter 18, verse 30. And this is the text that the Lord has given us today by his providence. We just work through it. This is what he's laying before us. Okay? So let's read it. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these I have kept from my youth. And so just stopping right there for a second. So far, what we've seen is that this man looks like the perfect seeker. What must I do to have eternal life? Right? But it's a superficial desire for eternal life. We see that Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God alone is good. Basically, do you believe that I'm God? Is that why you're saying that? And what's your understanding of goodness and the holiness of God? And so right away, we've seen his We've seen a superficial desire for heaven, which doesn't automatically mean someone is going to be saved or desires to truly be saved. We've seen his false understanding of God, and now we see his false understanding of himself because Jesus says, hey, keep these commandments, and he says, I've kept them all, right? And so Jesus now exposes this 
clearly by even going further. He says, it says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. It's not that he really only lacked one thing. It's that one thing was going to expose all of it and blow it all up. He says, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. So he offered him genuinely eternal life through following Christ as Lord. And the man rejects it, no matter what he said in the beginning. Now, verse 24, these are our verses. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. What a passage. Now, what we're seeing here in this passage is Jesus is continuing to give clarity about what is required in order to be saved. He's continuing to give the conditions for conversion. In other words, Jesus is continuing to make clear how somebody is justified, how they're made right before God, what is required to enter the kingdom of God, how someone can be saved. He's just making it clear. And here is the fourth and final condition of the list. And that list has started back in verse 9. We've gone through the first three conditions. And here, this fourth condition that he makes clear on the list is that salvation requires a sovereign act of grace by God. That's what is necessary for someone to be saved. And that's the main point. That's the doctrine or the teaching that's being made known in this section. And that's why I've entitled the message, The Condition for Conversion, Part 4, Salvation Made Possible by Sovereign Grace. In other words, the condition for someone to truly be converted what is required in order for someone to truly be saved is that God would decisively and sovereignly intervene to save the sinner or else no sinner will be saved. 
or only God can bring this about. Only God can overcome the power of sin in somebody's life. Only God can overcome the blindness to the spiritual realities of who God is, who they are, the forgiveness they need, and then turn from sin and trust in Christ. Only God can do that. Only God can cause a spiritually dead person to come back to what? Life. Only God can overcome the love of sin in someone's heart. And we've seen so far in this section, Jesus has given all these conditions. He's given the idea that someone must recognize God's holiness. That's why when we share the gospel, we start with the holiness of God. It's only in light of who God is do we recognize that we fall short. And then we must recognize the depth of our own sinfulness. It's not that you just do sin. You are a sinner by nature, and sinners prefer sin. Sinners will persistently pick sin. That's your nature. And even if we break one of the laws, we, have, we are lawbreakers and guilty before God. I mean, we can't save ourselves. And so this person, we, we realized so far in these conditions, must plead for mercy through Christ, through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. It only comes through his person and work. And it means believing in him and fully following him and trusting in his merit alone and making him Lord. And now we see that this can only happen if God, by his power and by his grace, saves the sinner. God must do the saving work. And so to make this clear and show how the whole passage progresses towards this truth, I've divided the passage into three headings, which make clear to us the main point. Number one, the preference of sin. This is what we'll see in our verse, in our verses, our chapter, our section, verses 24 through 25. Number two, we'll see the power of sovereignty, verses 26 through 27. And number three, we'll see then the prophet of salvation, verses 28 through 30. So the preference of sin, the power of sovereignty, and then the prophet of salvation. So in order to make these points clear and show us how they point to the main point, let's take each point, one point at a time. Number one, the preference of sin verses 24 through 25. Follow along as I read it. It says, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. We see here the preference of sin. So Jesus now had genuinely offered the ruler eternal life, right? He offered the ruler eternal life. And this was a genuine offer. The ruler asked back in verse 18, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in Mark's account, he tells us that 
Jesus looked at him and loved him. And so in love, Jesus says this. He says, sell all that you have and follow me. That's a a loving gospel sharing. Jesus says, you want eternal life? Here's how you get it. I'm going to tell you how, right? He says, sell all that you have and follow me. And then you're going to have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. It'll be the evidence that you believe in who I am and who you are and what you need and that I'm the Lord. And then you'll have treasures in heaven. And so this was a genuine offer of eternal life. And Jesus told the ruler of the heavenly reward that would await him. And the man rejects the lordship of Christ. Unwilling to be led by someone or something other than his money. And therefore the man forfeits salvation. So starting in verse 24, as we pick up in our verses, we move into a section that's really just the Lord's commentary on what just happened. Okay, this could be titled the Lord's commentary. You wouldn't have any insight as to what's being said, but that's what's happening. He moves into the commentary about the situation and that really continues until verse 30. So the, the, Jesus is about to give us teaching on what just happened. And so if you remember when this, the, the, the ruler rejected Jesus, he didn't even re-engage Jesus, right? He doesn't respond to Jesus. Jesus says, sell all that you have and follow me and you'll have treasures in heaven. And the man walks away sad. So the man's actions and his attitude say everything about his belief. And that's what the Bible teaches us. That's why we can know them by their what? Fruit. Right? The man's actions and the man's attitude. He can say whatever he wants. He can say he desires whatever he wants. He can say he believes anything he wants about Jesus. That's why Jesus gave him concrete evidence about the the commands dealing with others to at least help this man to see that you've fallen short. You're a sinner. Because everyone says that they love God and they believe in Jesus and et cetera, et cetera. This man... Jesus is trying to expose to this man his sinful condition and the lordship issue is what really um, uh, makes this thing clear. And this man, he doesn't need to say a word. His actions and his attitudes say it all. So he turns away from Christ. He doesn't even respond. His actions make manifest his belief. And so then verse 24 Jesus doesn't even re-engage the ruler either. The the man's made his decision, right? So Jesus doesn't re-engage. In all three gospel accounts, he doesn't re-engage the man. He's offered him the offer, which shows us when you evangelize, tell the person the conditions for salvation. Just tell them the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And God's got to work in somebody's heart. You, you don't try to ever manipulate the situation, make the gospel more acceptable, et cetera, et cetera. You are, you are putting on yourself what is only done by God. You share the information. You proclaim the news. You present the truth. You're an ambassador. You herald the message. That's all you do. And God has to do the work. 
And Jesus here doesn't make it more acceptable for the seeker. And by the way, it doesn't even make any sense that churches and people do that. Why would you make the gospel more, quote unquote, acceptable? By doing that, someone then says, oh, I'll live my, continue to live my life and I'll just bring Jesus along with me. And, and they keep the same destruction in their life that they had before. I mean, that's not even a loving way to do that. Plus, it doesn't ever show somebody the deep guilt that they have in standing before God, which is the very thing that makes someone convicted and turn from their sin and turn towards Christ. The most loving thing you can do is tell them the urgency of the situation and their standing before God and judgment and, and their need for forgiveness. Don't make it more acceptable. Tell them the truth if you want someone to truly be saved, right? And so Jesus is telling this man the truth and he rejects it. And now he's turning to the disciples and he's teaching them about the situation. Never re-engages the ruler again. He gave him the truth and the man made his decision. And now he moves on to this fourth condition. And Luke writes this in verse 24. Jesus, seeing that he had become what? Sad. Now, let me tell you, this is picturesque of what we see in, Mac, in Luke 13, 24. It says, strive to enter through the narrow door, meaning this. There's only one way to heaven. And there are only certain conditions that you can come by. It's through Jesus Christ alone. It's through repenting of your sin. And it's through believing in Christ. And that's it. It's a narrow door. You can't come through whatever door you want. There's not a bunch of doors and you can just pick one. And you got to drop your baggage, your own sense of your own spiritual superiority or your own merit in order to fit through this narrow door. It says that many, I tell you, will seek to enter it. That's what this ruler did. But he was not what? Able. Because he didn't come by Christ's terms. You can't make up your own terms and think you're saved. And so this was, he was not able to enter it. And then he had this, his superficial desire for heaven was exposed because he had this worldly sorrow that came along with it. He was sad, right? And that's why you can't trust emotions as the evidence of someone's genuineness. You can't do that. And you can't even trust your own emotions as your sense of genuineness. Many people have what is called, the Bible describes as worldly sorrow. You're sorry that you got caught. You're sorry that your sin made you not have what you want. You're, you're sorry that, and sorrowful that, that you know, that's, there's some consequences in your life. That leads still to death because there, it's no repentance. But godly sorrow, when you're convicted of your sin and your guilt before God, and you want to honor God and be made right before God, it leads to repentance, which then leads to life. And this is what this man lacked. And so he has this worldly sorrow. He knew he wasn't going to give up the, the purpose, the leadership, the lordship, the pursuit of his life, which was wealth, in exchange for Christ's sovereign rule to have eternal life. So although he was sad, listen now, he was sadly willing to walk away from salvation. He wanted both. He wanted heaven and he wanted a worldly Lord. 
He wanted heaven and he wanted no submission to God. He wanted heaven and he wanted what only money could buy. He wanted heaven and he wanted to be the Lord of his own life. And this is revealed because if the man believed, he would repent and follow Christ. I mean, that's just the way it works. You make manifest what you believe by your actions, right? If I told you the building was gonna blow up, I could tell you who believed me because everyone who believed me would do what? Run out the door, right? And this is what Peter says. In John chapter six, he says, Lord, the Lord looks at Peter and says, you wanna walk away too because of my requirements? And Peter says, listen, it's, it's gonna be tough, but where else are we gonna go? Right, you have the words of what? Eternal life, because we believe and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God, that you're the only one who offers salvation, that it's gotta come through you. That, uh, I, I mean, I, there's no other option. I'm following you. I'm making you Lord. It's, it's evidence that someone believes and this man he was able to reject this offer. And uh, true believers, they say, I'm following you as Lord because you're Lord <laughs> and because you offer salvation, right? So we see this. And then in verse 24, Jesus makes the first statement of commentary about it. Seeing that he'd become sad, he says this, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, again here, just to, to beat the dead horse, um, it's proof, once again, we've gotten the main point right. This is about how one enters the kingdom of God, the conditions for conversion, right? This is the whole section, it's clear. How difficult it is for someone who has wealth to enter the kingdom of God. That's the topic of Jesus's discussion. So beginning right here, right away, Jesus doesn't turn back to the man, but he turns to the disciples and he's teaching on entering the kingdom of, of God. And what Jesus says to start this commentary is how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter it, right? Now let's start here with this in the sense that we just saw, listen now, we just saw evidence of this. The ruler who was wealthy rejected salvation. We, we've seen evidence just now when Jesus is saying this. Now, I want to point this out because I think it's important. Um, the issue here is not so much a need issue. A lot of people say when interpreting this passage, it's difficult for wealthy people to enter the kingdom because they don't see a need, right? And, and yeah, that's certainly true in many ways, Right? Um, but that's not the focus of this section, right? And still, by the way, that's no excuse because even if you're wealthy, you have a conscience that excuses you or accuses you, as Romans 2 says, which makes you aware of your guilt before God, which makes you aware that you need his forgiveness, right? So that's not an excuse, but also that's not what's in view here. And I think it's insightful that we look at what's really in view here. It's not so much about seeing a need because even in verse 18, we see that he sees some kind of need. 
The issue here is rejection. The issue here is lordship. The issue here is not that he had a failure to see a need issue. It was that he failed to follow Christ. And what Jesus is saying here, what the passage highlights, is that it will be extremely difficult for the wealthy to be saved because they're unwilling to follow Christ supremely rather than their income. This is a lordship issue. He's saying here that the wealthy will have a difficult time not pursuing their wealth as the primary focus of their life and be willing to give up that pursuit in order to follow Christ first. That's going to be a difficult thing for, some, for someone who's wealthy to do that and not to pursue their house, their possessions, their salary, their income, their social status as the primary pursuit of their life. I mean, that's the world we live in. Your, your job defines you. Your salary defines you. Who are you? It's what you do. It's how much money you make. It's what your status is in the culture. And that is so short-sighted and so silly. I mean, let me just tell you, in case you don't know, when you get to heaven, Jesus is going to look at nobody and say, how much money did you make? Or how, what kind of career did you have in comparison to others? The first will be last and the last will be first. You, Jesus will look at you and say, did you trust in my son for the forgiveness of your sins and evidence your true belief by following Christ supremely? And so this man walks away from eternal life. It's, this is a lordship issue. And just to even make it clear to prove it, as we'll get into later, that's what exactly what Peter refers to when we get down to verse 28. Peter said, see, we have left our homes and follow you, followed you. He's speaking like, see, we have done what the ruler failed to do. Give up all of our possessions and follow you. The issue here is, is lordship. It's following Christ. Although it runs all together and we're splitting hairs here because if you see a need, your true need and your sinful condition, you'll follow him as Lord. And if you follow him as Lord, obviously you've seen the need. But I think this highlights that it's difficult for the wealthy to be saved because they're unwilling to give up themselves and follow Christ as Lord. And that's what Matthew 6 says. It says no one can serve two what? Masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's a lordship verse, right? The issue here is serving your money as your primary and guiding objective of your life. First Timothy 6 says this, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The issue here is living for, making, saving, spending, having money. That's what defines your life. That's the characteristic of your life. That's how you view your life. That's what makes you excited about your life. And because of that, people will, whether you say it or not with your words, 
reject making Christ the Lord of your life and having salvation. Can you believe that people give up salvation for a salary? I mean, that's insane. That's insane. And that's Satan's trick. That's the perspective of the world. And what Jesus is moving towards, it's that it's an impossible switch. Because to give up wealth is the primary pursuit of your life and to follow Christ in whatever he says, it will mean suffering. It will mean sacrifice. It will mean surrender. It will mean a change in your social status. And so if you follow Christ supremely and you follow his word and obey all the things his word says, it will not allow you to simultaneously obey your love for wealth. At some point when you follow the word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, at some point you will have to choose because what is required of you by the word is contrary to what would be beneficial to you regarding wealth. And at that point, when you choose, you have one Lord. It's either the money or it's what? The wealth. I mean, Christ. It's either the wealth or it's Jesus. And so that's why it's impossible to serve too. And said, so those who love their wealth will have a hard time choosing and then will forfeit salvation to have their wealth. Psalm 10.3 says, the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. So to reinforce this statement, Jesus then gives a Persian proverb in verse 25. All he's doing is reiterating what he just said in verse 24 and taking it up a notch. He says this, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is slowly taking the situation. He's escalating the conversation to where it needs to be. It started off in one place with the disciples' comments and the situation with the ruler, but he's taking it to where it needs to go. And that's moving us to the impossibility of all people to be saved. So he talks about, he says this Persian proverb in verse 25, and he's getting to the idea that it's not just difficult, it's impossible. Uh, he gives a picture that's well used by the Jews at this time. It's, it's a hyperbole to reinforce the point that the wealthy will choose to reject Christ and salvation in order to have their wealth. And so he uses a camel. He says a camel, which is at this time the largest animal in Palestine, okay? And it was used for emphasis, just like in Matthew 23, 24, he says, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a what? A camel, right? I mean, it's used for emphasis here. And so then he uses the eye of a needle, which this in the Greek refers to something that's carved. And so it would be a carved hole in a wooden needle where like a paper thin thread would be inserted, which was one of the smallest objects in the Palestine world. 
And so this is intentional. What Jesus is making clear here is how difficult it will be for the wealthy to choose Christ over their wealth. And then in the next verse, he's going to use the big word, which starts with an I. And what is it? Impossible. It's not only difficult, it's what? Impossible. But I want you to see here that Mark takes us even further. Because Matthew and Mark's account are very helpful in in understanding this. You can look at all of them later. I'm going to show you some references. But Matthew's account, actually, let me show that first, says essentially the same thing that Luke says. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom. And then he says the same proverb. But look at what Mark tells us. He takes it further. It says, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at the words. But Jesus said to them again, and now watch this, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus now takes this to a more general statement even though he surrounds it by the idea of a rich person. And so Mark gives us this statement. Mark adds to to this statement and gives us a picture here of lordship for really everybody, right? And so then we know that uh, this is a lordship issue because again, Peter later on says we've left our homes. And so the issue is this, how impossible it will be for people to choose Christ really over anything, not just the wealthy, And we're going to see this in a minute because really at the end of this or or at the beginning of the next verse, the disciples say, well, then who can be saved? This is taking it more and more general. And Jesus is going to explicitly say for everybody, it's impossible for man. And so the rich are indicted, but really everyone's indicted, right? And Jesus uses this proverb to express the impossibility And so what we see here is this. Sinners prefer sin. Listen now. Really understand this. You got to understand this this aspect here. Sinners prefer sin. Sinners will pick sin. It's part of their nature. And you should know that of yourself. I mean, think of your, your sin. Think of your guilt before God. Think about how often in a day you go without sinning. Think about the times that you know the right thing to do and you still reject it. Think about the times that you don't do what you know you're supposed to do. Sin of commission and sin of omission. I mean, you're you're a sinner. And you couldn't make up for where you lack in any way. Your, Your guilt before God stands and only increases. And we call this total depravity. Romans 3 says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned away and aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even, how many? One. 
It's the power, it's the preference, it's the priority of sin in the sinner's life. Salvation is humanly impossible, is what Jesus is getting at. Romans 8 says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it what? Cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Uh, Isaiah 65 says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices. I mean, think about this. Think about the outworking of the curse since Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sin. Then Cain kills Abel. Then they build a tower to work their way to God and to be worshiped. Then God sends a flood but sin still remains as evidence that to get rid of sin, you would have to wipe out everybody. Not one person could be left because sin just continues. It's in every heart. And no one can be saved on their own because they can't be righteous and they won't choose God. Jeremiah 13 says this, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. 1 Corinthians 2 says, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What a hopeless situation we find ourselves in. Here, Jesus is making clear the, the wealthy man. But really, we're about to get to the fact that this applies to everybody. So that's your condition. And it leads us to our second point, which is the power of sovereignty. Verses 26 through 27 says this, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So verse 26, we don't know who says it. It's someone who speaks really on behalf of the whole. The question is, rooted in an idea in the Old Testament that the wealthy were people who were favored by God. That's what they thought, which was true sometimes. God promises the blessing of those who fought to, to those who follow him. But the Old Testament also makes clear that someone's riches were not to be the evidence of a universal sign of God's approval. Uh, places like Proverbs 28, 6 says, better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Being rich is not the evidence of God's blessing, right? Uh, you think about the woman who gave the penny, right? She gave up all that she had. And so the disciples interpret Jesus' statement as this. If the rich find it impossible to enter the kingdom of God, that means everyone will find it impossible. Who then can get in? And the escalation of this from the focus of the wealthy first to the more general who gives the implications that Jesus' remark is not just the wealthy who are in trouble, but everyone. Essentially, is it possible for everyone to be saved? And then Jesus doesn't reject this. He allows the conversation to escalate to this general idea that who can be saved? And then Jesus says in verse 27, very clearly, he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Matthew gives it to us like this. He says, when the disciples heard this, and this is more clear. This helps us to understand what Jesus is really saying. 
Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at him and said this. I mean, it can't be any more clear. Who can be saved? Ready? With man, this is what? Impossible. It's impossible. Mark says the same thing. Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is what? Impossible. And side note here, when we say it's impossible, or all things are possible with God, and I don't want to see any blushing, but this is often taken out of context, isn't it? All things are possible with God. And people actually use this to do the very opposite of what this passage is teaching, which is promote the idea of their wealth, God giving them wealth, and their job, and their career. Can I tell you something? This passage specifically refers to the impossibility of salvation, the total depravity of man, the supernatural work of God that is necessary for salvation for anyone to be saved. This is a passage that promotes sovereign grace. So the question here is then who can enter? We got the main point right again. You see that? Who can enter? That's what we're talking about. And Jesus says that God is the only one who can make this possible. God must intervene. He must on his own initiative by a gracious act of no merit of the sinner, just in his loving kindness, by his divine power, he must open the sinner's eyes. He must give the sinner a new heart. He must grant the gift of faith. He must cause the sinner to repent. The sinner must be worked in, in his heart by God to turn to, to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. Ephesians, it's not, not up on the screen, says this, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. Listen now, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, listen to this, made us alive together with who? Christ. The term sovereign refers to God's superior power and authority. The word grace refers to God's unmerited intervention. God in his great power that is the only one who can overcome the preference of sin in a sinner's life intervenes by his own initiative to save the sinner. That's amazing. That's what you must pray for when you share your faith, that God would intervene by his power and save your, your coworker. Not try by your own might to manipulate the situation so they pray a prayer. And you can't save anybody. God must do the work. And you must reflect that if you know Christ, 
What an incredible privilege that God has intervened in your life, stopped you dead in your tracks when you were just walking like a zombie on your own towards sin. He opened your eyes. He softened your heart. He gave you understanding. He turned you and you believed in Christ and were saved. That's a miracle. And this is what he's teaching Peter here. That's the whole point of this. He says how difficult it is for a rich man to enter. Peter says, who can be saved? And Jesus says, basically, when I'm gone and you guys are going out, here's what you're going to understand. It's impossible with man, but it's possible with God. And this is what he's done, and this is how we must understand. God must be praised in regards to salvation. You have done nothing. John 6 says this, no one can come to me unless the father who sent him, what? Draws him. First Corinthians three says, I planted, Apollos watered, but who? God gave the? So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. John three says, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Ephesians 2 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Romans 9 says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God must save the sinner. God makes salvation possible with man. Salvation is humanly what? Impossible. The situation is hopeless, but God can override the hopeless situation. It's a powerful God who's able to change a sinner's heart by his grace and can break the curse of sin. Romans 1 says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? Power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. 1 Corinthians 1 says, but to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the what? Power of God and the wisdom of God. Ezekiel 36 says, and I will give them a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Jeremiah 32 says, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Romans 8 says, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The idea here is that God has the power to save and he has the power to do so effectively all the way through. And this is what must happen. And here's the deal, you ready? This is what happens for true disciples. And this is what happened in the life of these disciples. And that's what points us to the third point which is the prophet of salvation. Now look at verses 28 through 30. Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. That's like Peter, isn't it? And he said to them, truly I say to you that no one has left, no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal 
life. Peter, like normal, speaks up as a representative of the whole. He says in verse 28, see, we've left our homes and followed you, right? And uh, Peter here is asserting that God must have worked in their hearts. God must have done the impossible in them. And because they did what the ruler failed to do. Listen now, a true disciple does exactly the opposite of what the ruler did. Right? He says, we've left everything and followed you. Right? And so he's asserting here that they've done it and they've made Jesus Lord. They've committed themselves moment by moment to following Christ under the authority of his word. And Peter's not bragging here. Peter's just telling the truth. The disciples have left all to make God first. And the reason why it's pretty clear that he's referring back to the ruler is because the word he used here in the Greek for homes is not really the word homes, it's possessions. The idea is possessions. And so Peter's saying here, uh, this man was offered to sell all of his possessions and to come follow Christ and to then receive treasures in heaven. And Peter's saying, we have given up all of our possessions and decided to follow you in order to have treasures in, in heaven. And we know that he's, he's really referring to this even further because he's also asking for a bit of affirmation here. Are we gonna have the results? And how do we know that? Well, look at Matthew's account. Peter says it this way. See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have, right? The idea here is, do we get the treasures in heaven like you offered the rich young ruler once he gave up his possessions, followed you? Well, are we getting that same thing? the treasures in heaven. And then Jesus, he graciously and affirmingly responds here for the rest of the time. That's what we're doing for the rest of this. He says, he affirms this in Peter and basically says this, it's gonna be worth it. It's gonna be worth it. You give up everything to follow Christ and it's gonna be worth it. It's going to be worth it. And this reminds us back to the discussion of even praying for the future kingdom. Remember in the parable of the persistent widow when he's praying for vindication? This vindication is going to come when the kingdom, when the physical kingdom comes. But it doesn't just start with that. It starts here in this life now. The reward is going to counterbalance the sacrifice. So verse 29, he begins to explain the reward. He affirms this in Peter. He said to him, truly I say to you, there is no one, I got another spider on my pulpit here. Who did, who did that? Who put that there? Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now stop right there for a second. He says, truly I say to you. In other words, what I'm about to say to you is entirely true. Bank on it. You can trust it. There is no one who has left house. That's the term possessions again. It can refer to even the security of a home. It can return to, it can apply to a vocation. Not just a home. It's not anyone who's left a vocation like Peter did. He left his fisherman job to follow Christ. It's possessions. It's a home. It's, it's, uh, it's a vocation. 
And then he says, wife. Not promoting abandonment here, but maybe someone choosing to remain single in order to follow Christ's call. Maybe it's choosing to remain single for the gospel ministry. Or maybe it's traveling without her often because the mission calls for it. Or maybe it's sacrificing time with her because the ministry. Or maybe it's even being rejected in the case of an unbelieving spouse in order to follow the Lord because you believe that he's the Lord. And then he goes on to say brothers or parents, leaving them for Christ's calling. Many will be rejected by their family for believing in Christ. And many will leave them when they decide to follow his call to the kingdom. And then he says children, which starts to touch the real nerve inside you because some of the most prized loved ones we have. And again, he's not advocating abandonment, but sacrifice. Time for ministry, to follow Christ. Even being killed for the faith would leave all these family members behind. So it's all of that. And all of this is a picture of lordship. Following Christ supremely as the Lord. It's going to require sacrifice of yourself in this life. Disciples had done this. The the ruler refused to do this. But this is what all people must do if they're going to follow Christ. It's interesting here that Peter highlights possessions when he says, see, we've left everything. Jesus highlights relationships when he says it. And all of this is done for the sake of the kingdom, right? Mark says it this way. Truly, I say to you, no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or land for the sake of my sake and for the what? Gospel. That's the idea here. In verse 30, he says, there's no one, no true believer who who has given this up. Listen now, who will not receive many times more in this time He's speaking first of just your life here on earth. In Matthew, it says this, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters, he doesn't say many more like Luke does many more times. He's more specific. Listen now, we're almost done. Matthew's account is more specific. He says, everyone who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold. Mark says it even more specifically will not receive a hundredfold now than this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution. In other words, what true disciples get back for their sacrifice of following Christ is even more relationships in the larger community of faith. They're gonna get a spiritual family, spiritual brothers and sisters and fathers. They're gonna get a church. They're gonna get believers who God will put in their life, a family of faith. And they're going to get not only the people, but all the possessions and the provisions that they need. 
This is not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It's not a name it and claim it gospel. It's not a Joel Osteen gospel here. Mark adds this. He adds with what? With what? Persecutions. Listen, this is the idea. You ready? If you follow the gospel, if you believe Jesus Christ is Lord, which prevents many people from following him because it will come with all of God's provisions for the people that you'll need in your life, all of God's provisions for the resources that you'll need in your life, and it will come with all the persecution from being faithful to the what? To the gospel. And believing that there's only one Lord, you have to understand this about the calling. And the reason that this is pushed in here is because that's why people reject Christ as, as Lord. It's because the suffering that will come along with it. You want proof? I mean, think about it this way. If you stand on the conditions for a conversion like we've read in the story, let's think about this. If someone on uh, your favorite station, I'll pick mine, ESPN, right? If someone broadcasted on ESPN, we're all sinners. What we deserve is judgment. Christ died for your sin. He's the only way to heaven. Trust in him and be saved or you will go to hell. What would happen? Yeah, you'd be canceled. The whole program, the whole station. And if you did that with your job, why do you tiptoe around your job thinking about how to share your faith? Because the world, what? Rejects the message. It's just obvious. It couldn't be more obvious. So listen, now it's going to come with sufferings. And I just want to show you this. First uh, Peter 2 says this, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it? When you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. That is an amazing statement. You have been called to suffering for doing good. That's part of being a Christian. And so you can't avoid it if you hold true to the true gospel and believe Christ is the Lord and have been saved and left everything to follow him. And so listen, he says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example. Christ was the epitome of suffering for doing what? Good. He left you an example. For Second Timothy says this, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me as prisoner, but share in the what? In what? Sufferings, right? By the power of God who saved us and called us by his own works, drop down a little bit. Paul says this, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I what? Suffer as I do. He says, but I'm not ashamed. I know whom I've believed. I'm willing to endure the suffering and follow the Lord because he's the true Lord. Second Timothy says this, you then my child be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in what? Suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. That's an amazing statement. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, one who's made him Lord, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. His aim is to please the one who enlisted him. That's a true saved person. And so these, this is what Jesus describes. It's going to come with eternal reward, not only here, but in the age to come, which is eternal life. And so let me just close this and say, the idea here is, here's the, the, the exact picture of this. 
is that sinners will prefer sin. God has the power to save. And the reward of following Christ as Lord will be not only everything you need in this life, but also eternal life. And you need to understand this teaching. You need to exalt God to his proper place for the work of salvation. And you need to understand what you need to be praying for when you share your faith and what's required in order for someone to truly be saved. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. That's clear to us. We could spend pretty much all day just applying this to different areas of our lives, but we just need to understand the explanation of it and what it means. And God, I I pray that you would continue to work this understanding and application in our lives as we move out from here. And we thank you for your, your power to save. We thank you. God, pray that we would choose to um, endure suffering for the sake of the gospel. And God, that, uh, that you would do your work in the hearts of sinners here, that we would repent of our pursuit of wealth or self and submit to you as the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.